Well, at least the church is still standing. That was oftentimes the phrase that my pastors would use whenever I was assigned as an associate, whenever they came back to the parish from a vacation or a trip away. Well, at least the church is still standing. Now, that was a joke between the two of us because we knew that there was so often more than just keeping the church building standing, that there were sacraments that had to be administered, there were things that had to be done in the front office, there were problems that had to be solved. There was a lot more than met the eye, and so it wasn't just about the church structure. That was just the bare minimum. We had to do so much more. And in life, so many times, it is about that so much more, that we can oftentimes settle for the bare minimum, or maybe we can approach that and look at it and say that that is enough. But whenever we look at the reality of where we are, what our life invites us to, so many times it's so much more than just what we had imagined, or even that very low bar. And even with our faith, sometimes we don't see the obligation, the things that we need to do. Sometimes we just look at the bare minimum, and that's it. But what is our Lord actually asking of us? What is he encouraging us to do as we live a life of faith? Is it more than just the bare minimum? Is it more than just keeping the church still standing? To begin to answer that question, we should start off with the book of the prophet Isaiah. This reading comes from very early in the book, about chapter 5, where we're actually introducing the problem that is about to occur. That they are aware that there are oppressors on every side, but Isaiah is aware of what's going to happen. That the Lord has given him insight, and so he issues this sort of allegory, or this sort of poem or song, so that the Israelites can understand what's about to happen and why it's going to occur. And so he tells them this, that there's this song of his friend, a friend and his vineyard. And the vin- this friend has established a vineyard that he goes through, he clears the land, he does all the work necessary to make a good vineyard. He buys the choicest of plants so to produce the best of wine. And once more, he puts a watchtower to keep safe everything of this vineyard, and then even digs out a wine press because he's so confident that it's going to build or it's going to yield a good fruit. And so the time comes for that fruit, and what does he find? wild grapes. Now, in a certain sense, he's enraged because he's put in all this work and all this effort, and all it's yielding is wild grapes. Now, to get a better understanding and context, wild grapes are bitter. They're small compared to what they would have farmed, and so it doesn't produce all that much good wine. And so, in fact, he is upset because it's not producing what it should. And so what does he do? Well, he lays waste to the entire vineyard. He tears everything down that protects that vineyard, and he lays waste. He ravages the entire thing because it hasn't done what it's supposed to do. And indeed, even weeds start to grow up in the midst of this because he's no longer taking care of it, that that initial investment proved that it was not worth it, and so he simply went away. And the thing is, as much as that might be a parable that seems like it's kind of an interesting or an odd depiction, it in fact is Isaiah pointing directly at the house of Israel. Because that line that's in there, and even the one we use as the responsorial psalm, the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel, that he's actually telling them they faulted. They're not following up with the covenant. They're not doing what the Lord has asked, and therefore, because of that, they're going to be laid to waste. They're going to see utter ruin. They're going to see everything that they treasure and hold dear completely obliterated. And that's because the Lord has done what he is supposed to do, and yet they're not responding, that he's given them every chance and everything that they desired, and yet they still haven't responded, and they've only yielded wild grapes. 
And so at the end, we hear that the Lord is speaking, and he says that he was looking for something, but instead he was only yielded bloodshed, and there was an outcry. There was not justice. There was not this exaction or not this covenant of exchange like there was supposed to be. So the house of Israel, unfortunately, because of that, they suffer. They haven't recognized what the Lord has done for them. We move on and we hear from St. Paul in his second letter to the Philippians, or his letter to the Philippians in the second reading. And as he continues, he's actually nearing the end of his letter because he's starting to issue these exhortations, these different imperatives for the church of Philippi to follow. And so he's telling them, in particular, this one central theme, to follow so that the, peace of God, the God of peace will be with you. But he says two particular things. First, to have no anxiety at all. Now, in this day and age, that might be something difficult, but even in the church at that point in time, just a few verses earlier, he's addressing a specific concern that there's two women that are very notable in the community that are at odds with one another, and so there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of chaos. But Paul wants them to change. So he's telling them to have no anxiety at all, but instead raise prayer and petition to God, and then the God of peace will be with you. But then he continues on, because he wants them not just to hear this, to put aside anxiety, but he wants them to seek more, to invest more fully in their life of faith, to seek out whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is honorable, all of these things that he lists along the way, that whatever these things are, to seek those things. And St. Paul crafts this very beautifully because he recognizes he can't enumerate every single thing that the church of Philippi should do. And so instead he's covering central ideas. So he's saying, whatever follows this, whatever follows this, whatever accomplishes this thing, whatever these things are, do those things. And then the God of peace will be with you. Again, that central theme, that they want the God of peace, he wants to encourage them along the way with these exhortations. Then finally we reach the gospel according to Matthew and we're introduced to another parable and another one that is actually rather harsh towards the elders and the chief priests, but one that is altogether nonetheless necessary. And so he tells that there was a landowner who leased out his vineyard to tenants and then went away on a journey. And the time of harvest came near, that vintage time, and so he sends servants to obtain its produce. And the servants, they mistreat. They beat some, they kill others, and then they stone a third, and so they are unanswered. And then he sends more servants, more numerous than the first. Maybe they didn't quite get the message or get the picture because there wasn't enough. And again, they mistreat them in the same way. And so the landowner reaches this point where he's wondering, what am I going to do to get across to these people? And so he decides he's going to send his son because in his mind he thinks, they will respect my son. But these people are so corrupt and so jaded that they are so far gone that they see the sun and what do they think? Not that they're going to get in trouble, but rather they think, this is the heir, let's kill him and acquire his inheritance. So they throw him out of the vineyard and they beat him and then they kill him. And then Jesus asks this question of the chief priests and the elders. He knows that they're wise enough to answer this. When that owner comes, what is he going to do? And they answer correctly. He's going to put those wretched men to a wretched death and give his vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the proper time. And Jesus answers affirmatively. But the thing is, he points it directly at them. And he says, therefore, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to other tenants. 
Indeed, it's an indictment. It's a strong one. It's very harsh. And it's so harsh that they get the idea. Because in a few verses, they're already looking for ways to put Jesus to death. They haven't received the message. They don't get it. They haven't heard what God is trying to say. But nonetheless, as, as we read through that parable, we need to understand the imagery that's being used. Because, in fact, the landowner is none other than God. That he has created all the heavens and the earth as a gift to be given to the tenants whom he chooses. And so he entrusts it to the first tenants. He entrusts it to the leaders, the chief priests, and the elders of the community. But the problem is, they don't quite understand the assignment. They're not quite sure what they're going to do. And so they instead become very corrupt, very jaded. So much so that when God sends his servants, which are the prophets, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all of the others, they don't recognize the message. They largely leave on, and they let it fall on deaf ears and simply let they go on life as usual. And even what's worse, they start to mistreat the prophets as well. And then the son comes. And this, in fact, is a prophetic moment because he's telling about how God sent his son, which is Jesus Christ himself, and how they see him, and then they throw him out of the city and kill him. Indeed, he's prophesying about his own death, that the Jewish leaders and the elders, those that are jaded and corrupt, are going to throw him out of the city of Jerusalem and kill him on Calvary. So that, in fact, happens. But nonetheless, Jesus points to that message at them. He says, you've had every benefit, every opportunity, and yet you haven't yielded a good harvest. Therefore, the kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to others who will produce that produce. Indeed, he's going to give it to the Catholic Church. But we hear that and we see that we have to understand God is giving so many gifts and so many benefits and so many things that he's entrusting to this community, and yet they fail to recognize that and they fail to realize it. And so, in fact, they are condemned because of this reality. But it's important for us to realize that that condemnation is very powerful and it's something that's a very real danger, but we don't want to approach that ourselves. Rather, we want to take care of what's been entrusted to us, but that necessitates the first question. What has been entrusted to us? When we can list off a countless list of things, but I dare say there's a few fundamentals we need to look at. First, we have the gift of life. That we are living and breathing right here and right now, and that means that we are given the advantage of having an opportunity to choose towards the Lord and choose towards what He gives us. That this gift of life is fundamental because it's the one that all of the other gifts pile upon, because it makes all of the others possible. And so, in fact, the gift of life is very important. And it's not just for us, but it's for those of us around. Because as October is Respect Life Month, it recognizes that gift of life not just for us. That's important. But it recognizes the gift of life that God has given to each and every one of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether living, whether deceased, or even yet to be. But nonetheless, we should recognize the beauty of that gift, and we should never take it for granted or treat it as if it's disposable. But it's one that's a very precious gift for each and every one of us. But then that gift, oftentimes it could be misused because we get this idea that we can simply spend life as we desire. But if we do that, we're going to squander it. We're not going to produce a good fruit. And so we have to do more. And that brings us to the second gift, which is the gift of faith. Now, the gift of faith, we might think about it as what we do ourselves, but if we understand where faith comes from, it is fundamentally a gift from God, that its origin is always in God, that no matter where we are, no matter what walk of life we've walked, that the Lord has always been there at the beginnings of faith, that he was the one that planted the first seed. 
But we can't take that for granted. We can't let that gift of faith go as if it's simply going to grow on its own. But we know that we need to nourish it. We need to feed it. We need to cultivate the ground around it. We need to help it grow because we can't just take it as for granted. We can't just take it as it is, as the Lord has given to us and put it in a closet and kind of leave it for later. But our faith has to be nourished. Otherwise, it will decay and fade away. Much like a vine that hasn't been tended to, it won't flourish. But if we tend to it, it will. And then that brings us to the other gifts that we receive. Because the gift of faith is not just something that we ourselves can nourish, that we can do a lot to do it, but we need something else, that we need God's help, we need God's grace. And what better grace has come to us than through the avenues of the church, which are the sacraments? Those seven different particular avenues of grace. Because, in fact, that's what the Lord entrusts to us. He wants to give us these because there's such monumental and such tremendous graces that we can receive. There's such great, great graces that we can receive that we can't even know the power of this Mass that we are attending right here, right now, the one that we are participating in. We do not know the full effect of what it's going to bring to our life. And yet we faithfully attend anyway, because if we do, we know that the Lord's going to bestow an abundance upon us. If we veil ourselves of the sacraments, if we take advantage of them, then we are going to receive even more than we had initially been offered. And we should do that with frequency. Even the sacrament of reconciliation, that is the sacrament of God's mercy and forgiveness. Why do we not approach that more? Because each and every time we do, we receive a particular grace of God's mercy and forgiveness. If we receive it more, we receive more grace. Why don't we receive it more? Why are we not bold enough to approach as often as we can, even maybe even once a month? Because my brothers and sisters, that grace is right there. It's offered to us. It's sitting right there at every moment and every opportunity, and we have every advantage to take of it. But in fact, sometimes we just simply take it for granted. We kind of leave it to the side. And that, in fact, is what the Lord is reminding us of, that the vineyard is all of these gifts. It's all of the different things that he has given to us. But we can't just take those things and simply sit on them. But rather, we need to take those things, we need to cultivate them so that we can make a due return to the Lord. That there, many times we can see that as just simply an advantage or something nice to have, but there's something of an obligation, something of a command, that we are being entrusted with something so that we can make something more out of it. Whether it's our life, whether it's our faith, whether it's the sacraments as well. And that's where that danger seeps in. That so many times we can just look at our faith life and we can think, well, the church is still standing. I'm just going to Mass on Sunday. It's still there. I'm doing what the Lord has asked. My brothers and sisters, if that's our view, we're selling ourselves short and actually we're fooling ourselves because it's not enough. It's not enough to just attend Mass on Sunday and kind of sit there passively, but instead we have to be taking advantage of what is offered to us, participating in that, and even looking for ways where we can continue to grow and nourish that gift of faith. Those moments where we can get ahead, those moments where we can really enact what the Lord is asking of us and produce a good fruit. That we can't just do the bare minimum. We can't just leave the church just standing. We can't just look at the structure and say, there it is. We have to make that a part of who we are. We have to take the gifts that are given to us and take advantage of them so that we can grow something more. That's what the tenants got wrong in the parable, that they weren't taking advantage of what the Lord had given them. They weren't making the full potential of what the Lord's gift was to them. Or even the Israelites, they weren't doing the same thing. But we have the advantage of knowing what the Lord is asking. We should be aware of everything that the Lord is giving to us so that we don't take those things for granted, but instead we enact on them and we act towards the Lord. 
And that's where the moment of opportunity is. Where is the Lord calling you right now to produce a better harvest in your faith? Where is he calling you to that place of opportunity? Where is he calling you to avail yourself of the further graces that he is offering? Whether simply in prayer or maybe in receiving one of the sacraments, perhaps reconciliation, or even going to Mass in a more fruitful way. Because the Lord is asking each and every one of us to do something more. Or even when the gift of faith, when we receive that, it's not just for ourselves, but it's also for those who are around us, that we should be willing to bestow that gift upon others as well. That there are those in our lives, and I dare say you and I have examples within our own lives, within our own circled people, of people who need conversion, but they need that gift of faith. And we have what it takes, that we have what they're thirsting for, what they're seeking, and what they're longing for. Why don't we give it to them? Why don't we have the courage to turn towards them? But then the other encouragement that we receive from St. Paul, to make the vineyard truly flourish, to do whatever is true, whatever is kind, whatever is holy, whatever is pure, whatever is decent, whatever is righteous, all of the different things that he mentioned, to do all of those things. If we truly do that, we're not just going to leave the church standing. We're going to leave it standing better than we found it. We're actually going to do more than the bare minimum. We're actually going to seek after that harvest that is abundant and great. My brothers and sisters, the Lord has given us so many gifts in this vineyard. Let's not leave it go to waste, but instead let's look for those ways where we can produce a harvest, not a harvest of wild grapes, but a harvest that will truly bring about a good yield of good grapes.